0: All right, friends, I want you to imagine a room in Paris in 1976 with wine glasses lined up on tables, shimmering in the ambient light. The setting was the esteemed Intercontinental Hotel. The participants were France's top wine experts. The event, it was a blind taste test set up by a British wine merchant named Steve Spurrier, not to be confused with the all-ball coach. That's supposed to be kind of funny, I guess it wasn't. um, He was a football coach who probably knew nothing about wines, or, or maybe he did. At any rate, the purpose of this event was to compare the revered French wines from regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy with little-known and lightly regarded wines from California's Napa Valley. That was the purpose. And the expectation, it was very clear. France, with its long-standing history of winemaking, they would, without question, reign supreme. Until they didn't. Until the absolute unimaginable occurred, the wines from California did not just hold their own, they won. And they won big, and the experts were shocked, absolutely shocked that these upstarts from California held the day. It was a symbol that in things regarding the winemaking world, things are not always as they seem. In fact, just a few decades later, the wine world would learn this lesson again, but this time through deceit and not through authenticity. Enter Rudy Kurnawan, who seemed to have, he seemed to have an impeccable taste in wine, an incredible ability in this area. By the mid-2000s, Rudy had become a prominent figure in the world of rare And vintage wines often selling bottles for tens of thousands of dollars each he had an incredible knowledge of wines he appeared very credible and he could speak extensively about vineyards vintages and flavors but once again all was not as it seemed Rudy would purchase large quantities of old cheaper wines perhaps like many of you in our congregation. (laughs) However, he then carefully transferred these wines into empty, genuine bottles of more prestigious and rare wines, using old corks and labels that had been expertly uh, counterfeited. He recreated bottles that appeared genuine to most collectors. And his actions, they were incredibly bold. He went to the most prominent auctions in the world where his bottles of wine fetched incredible prices, which most certainly added a layer of perceived authenticity to his wines because who would do this if they weren't real? But as the Bible teaches us, your sin will what? Your sin will find you out and his scheme ultimately unraveled in epic fashion. And in 2013, Rudy was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison, 10 years in prison, and he was ordered to pay restitution and forfeit all of his assets. This counterfeiting operation was a revelation in the winemaking world. These collectors were baffled that so many people could be deceived it turns out that the allure of a good story and the authenticity, appearance of authenticity could mask the taste of a forgery. Well, in the world of spiritual things, appearances can also be very deceiving. And Revelation 13 introduces us to the greatest counterfeit conspiracy that the world has ever seen. Okay? That's what we're going to see and Revelation 13 is the single greatest conspiracy that the world has ever seen. Look with me at our scripture reading today. Please stand as we read Revelation the last verse of chapter 7, uh, last verse of chapter 12 on through verse 10 of chapter 13. Remember beloved, these are the very written words of God. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon, remember he is Satan. We learned that last week. Then the dragon, he became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And there's this dramatic ending to chapter 12. And he, the dragon... He stood on the sand of the sea, just watching, waiting, considering. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I, John, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads now this should be very familiar with what we heard last week about the dragon himself and the beast that i saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they, meaning like the unbelieving world, as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they, the unbelieving world, worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has a hear, let him hear this. If anyone is to be taken captive, To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he also be slain. So here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So here we are again. In the book of Revelation, and if you were expecting things to get much more clear and lucid, that is not the case. Okay, but if you're just patient and you work with me, these symbols, these pictures, these images, their truth, and the reality behind them will hit home in significant ways. Okay, let's look at our text. Revelation chapter 12 ended with a cliffhanger, a significant cliffhanger. Because after trying to crush the church unsuccessfully, so we were introduced last week to the dragon, this powerful dragon, who the book of Revelation equates with Satan. And Satan's goal from the beginning has been to crush the church, to kill the church to persecute the church. And in every stage of the development of the church, Satan has tried to do this. It culminated, if you remember last week, when the woman who signifies the church gave birth to a male child. And we know throughout the Bible that male child was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dragon tried to ferociously attack and kill the male child but he couldn't do it then the male child ascended into heaven where he's ruling and reigning and this dragon was cast down to earth and he's angry and he's upset and he continues to try to kill and to persecute the church and look at how chapter 12 ends this is after he's been cast down he's furious with the woman He's not been able to destroy her child. Chapter 12, verse 17 in your bulletin reads, Then the dragon became furious with the woman. He's very frustrated and upset. And he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so this is tra- uh, transpiring after the ascension of Lord, the Lord Jesus and until Jesus comes again in power and glory. He's going off to make war on the church and on those who love Christ and remain faithful to him. And then this ominous, ominous statement at the end of chapter 12. And he, the dragon, he stood on the sand of the sea. What in the world does that mean? He's been thrown down to earth. His power has been minimized to some degree, but it says he still stands on the sand of the sea. In 1893, before there was weather radar, there was a catastrophic incident off the coast of South Carolina that occurred when a fleet of ships including the USS Vixen and the USS Wasp, inadvertently sailed directly into the path of a hurricane off the coast during the Spanish-American War. They were caught completely off guard, and the USS Vixen sank, and the USS Wasp was heavily damaged. Historically, the sea has been a place of great uncertainty until almost yesterday in the history of our world the sea was a place of chaos uncertainty and death the ability to predict the weather all that brand new in the scope of history happened yesterday for thousands of years countless of people countless people have gone out on a sailing trip only never to come back It symbolized uncertainty and danger to the ancients, and it certainly symbolized uncertainty, danger, and chaos to the original readers of the book of Revelation. And so it's here at the edge of the sea. It's here at the edge of this vast symbolic body of water, as it were, that symbolizes death and chaos. It is here that the beast signals his intention to summon forth, or the dragon and signals his intention to summon forth from this chaos of the sea, a beast. A beast that will wage war on the church with malevolence. And that's kind of a frightening and awe-inspiring picture. The great dragon, the devil, Satan, standing on the edge of the sea, summoning the beast, who will wreak havoc on the church in his name. But in the midst of all this, the church is called to perseverance and faithfulness and hope, and we will see that this beast symbolizes all of the world's ideologies and powers and governmental structures throughout the ages that opposes the church. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. The great dragon, Satan, has summoned him. This beast had ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, with ten crowns on its horns, okay, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the beast, the dragon, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now what's fascinating here is we're introduced for the very first time to the counterfeit Trinity. We worship our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, who loves his people and has a plan to make all things new. Remember how Satan, he clothes himself as what? An angel of light. He has been a deceiver from the beginning. And so in order to oppose the triune God, Satan manifests himself as this counterfeit Trinity, whereas Satan serves in a sense as God the Father, the first beast copies and mimics the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son and then the next beast in the second half of Revelation mimics the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this beast with these diadems, these crowns, this power These horns which symbolizes ultimate power. These seven heads. This completion of evil. He's got the attributes of Satan himself. He's claiming to be king. He claims all authority. If you look, what's interesting later, it's going to say that in a sense, um, he was dealt a mortal wound. And then he comes back, mimicking the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He seeks worship. And rather than preaching the kingdom of God, he preaches blasphemy and opposes Christ's role. So that's who we have here in verses one and two is the counterfeit, the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, embodied by all of the secular governments and ideologies of the world that would come to pass after Jesus' ascension until he comes again in power and glory. Look at how verse 2 describes this beast, this counterfeit second member of the Trinity. And the beast that I saw, he was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne, hear that, and great authority. It's an illusion back to the book of Daniel that describes a succession of worldly kingdoms and those worldly kingdoms would oppose the church. The beast is a synthesis and a composite of all of the world kingdoms rolled up into one who in every age and every era fights against the church. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, so the whole thing was not destroyed, but a dimension of it seemed like it was mortally wounded. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now this corresponds to what we talked about last week. Like in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or 72 disciples, to preach and teach in his name, to cast out demons in his name, and they came back. They were successful. They were overwhelmed by what they had been able to do in his name. And then Jesus said what to them in response? He rejoiced with them and he said what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So in the midst of Jesus's earthly work as the kingdom of God came in power and glory, Satan was as it were cast down which means his power was limited his power was not nearly as powerful as the expansion of the kingdom of God and we see that in Acts 2 as the Holy Spirit comes in power and glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ goes all over the world and even though Satan's power was limited the Lord still permitted him to have a role so he appeared to be totally defeated but the Lord allows him in limited but still efficacious ways to fight against the church. Look at verse four. And they, the world, worship the dragon. Okay? The world became dependent on man's wisdom and power and autonomy and intelligence. Okay? The world seemed to be ultimately uh, freed from its religious superstitions so that it could trust in in science alone and the wisdom of man and the governments of the world. Verse 4, and the world worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So the beast was persuasive and seemingly all-powerful. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You know, man's knowledge and ultimate potential is unlimited. And the things we don't know now, the world says, one day we will know. We don't have to appeal to the God of the gaps. We don't have to appeal to this myth it's 2,000 years old, one day we'll have an understanding of all these things. We'll understand how the universe could come from nothing. We'll understand what really happened on that day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. One day we'll know all things, and we'll know it in and of ourselves. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The three and a half years, three and a half is half of seven, okay? Three and a half in the context of Revelation, that symbolizes the time of evil. The Apostle Paul says we now live in the midst of this present evil age. So when Jesus Christ ascends between that point and when he comes again in power and glory, that whole time span equates to the three and a half years, that period of evil. Look what happens during that period of evil. We're in that period right now. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. There's really not a more persecuted people group in the history of the world than Christians. Like in the context of the Old Testament, the Jews, and in the New Covenant era, the church, there is no more persecuted or opposed people group or worldview than that of the God of the Bible. And so this is happening. These truths are unfolding before our very eyes. Never in the history of our country has this kind of activity been so vivid. I don't think that's a harbinger that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but I'm saying what's happening now in our country has happened in other cultures countless times. As we grow more and more into a post-Christian culture, we're gonna feel the effects of this. But there's hope, friends, and there's every reason to be comforted in the midst of this. Because what's gonna happen in verses seven, in verse seven is very intimidating, and it's very ominous for us, and the church in the 21st century. And it, this beast, even though he had been thrown down like lightning, Even though he had been cast down, it appeared to be a mortal wound, but it ultimately wasn't. The Lord is allowing Satan to do certain things. In the name of Satan, the beast, in verse 7, was allowed to make war on the saints. Now, this is very intimidating and foreboding. And to conquer them. And authority was given to it, the beast, over every tribe and people, and language and nation. Now, does that little phrase sound familiar? Every tribe and people and language and nation. Does that sound familiar? That's who, gonna, that's who is going to worship our triune God at the end of all things. Jesus died for what? Every tribe and people and language and nation. So, this counterfeit Christ for a time and a season is going to be given influence, in a sense, over that same group. Look at verse 8. And everyone on earth will worship it. Everyone is going to be led astray by this counterfeit Christ. Everyone, that is, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. All of this was written according to John. It's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So those last few verses, 8, 9, and 10, those verses are an encouragement for endurance and faith for you and me. There are keys, there are truths, there are encouragement in verses 8, 9, and 10 that should sustain us and make us hopeful and anticipatory of what is ahead. Okay, here we go, verse 10. It may not be obvious on the surface what is being said here, but let's look a little further. And this is what we all want. This is what we long for because it's said that the beast is going to conquer the church. And what that means is for a period of time, it's going to look like that the church has been defeated. You know, we've seen this in various times and various parts of the world over the last 2,000 years. The church has been persecuted and killed off until almost no one was left. There are still countries in the world right now where there are very, 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 very few Christians. I think in the nation of Japan right now the number of Christians marks less than five percent of the entire population. There are large swaths of the Near East right now where there are no professing Christians. It's amazing. What's happened in Europe? Okay, my son just got back from his little European tour. Sorry that the real world is coming in October. Hope he had a good time. He did go to center court in Wimbledon. And so I was saying yesterday, that has nothing to do with this sermon, but I'll just tell you this. (laughs) We were playing tennis yesterday. So did I tell you he got to go to center court of Wimbledon? He got to see Djokovic. He got to see Alcaraz, not the final. He got to see both of them in the fourth round on center court in Wimbledon. We had a little group. We were going to play tennis. And um, we were just thinking, okay, like in terms of the things you could do in life, that are the most significant trips. Like in my mind, like Jerusalem and the empty grave of Jesus, that's number one. Center court is number two. Okay. Not exactly sure how that relates to what we're saying, but I'm going to bring it back around. In Europe, places you go to that were at one time some of the most Gorgeous and reverent places of worship in the history of the world. The theology that we so enjoy and love and benefited from, that was the fruition of the Protestant Reformation in Europe and Germany, all over that part of the world. So many of those churches now are what? These beautiful churches, what are they? They're museums. It seems like the beast has won and has conquered and has been effective. Look with me at verse 10. It reads, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. In other words, before everything is said and done, the God of the Bible, the triune God, is going to make everything right. We worship a God not only of mercy and grace, but a God of justice and every wrong, every evil perpetrated by this counterfeit trinity, God's going to make right. I saw an amazing story just the other day. Believe it or not, World War II has been over for about 70-something years. And just last year, the outworking of the Nuremberg trials that were started in 1945 in Nuremberg, Germany, first time in the history of the world, a a tribunal, an international tribunal, tribunal like that, had been brought together to prosecute crimes against humanity, to deal with the evil of the Nazis. And they vowed and they pledged that they would never stop in their quest for justice. Just last year, they brought to justice a man who had served as a prison guard in a Nazi prison camp, and he's 101 years old. And he was prosecuted, and he was convicted for being complicit in the death of almost 4,000 people. That group is committed, and that group is nothing like the justice of God. So when we see these things and we're discouraged by these things, when we look at how Christianity is targeted in our country, when we see how missionaries are persecuted and killed all over the world, be comforted and encouraged to know that the God of the Bible, is going to make all things right and he's going to win. And last but certainly not least, verse 8, One of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. And so, again, you see the unity and coherence of God's word. You see that in the Bible, it was introduced in the Old Covenant and continued in the New. God always has a remnant. Even in the midst of the difficulty of the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, in the midst of the difficulty of God's people of old, God always, always, always had a remnant. There were always people who would not bow the knee to Baal. We see that here. That's true in our time and place. And it's not because of our wisdom, our ingenuity, our character. There's one reason, friends, why we're here today, why we don't love the beast, why we don't fall prostrate before him. There's only one reason, ultimately, why we love the Lord Jesus and long to serve him. Verse eight, and all who dwell on earth, meaning the non-Christian world, they will worship the beast. They will be persuaded by him. They will bow the knee to him, even though they may not realize that's what they're doing. Everyone, that is, whose name has not been written, before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you read that? There is a book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. Within this triune God, God the Father has had a book of remembrance where he wrote down the names of his elect ones all throughout the generation. And Jesus, as the slain lamb of God, died to redeem everyone who was written in that book. And the Holy Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit of the living God applies the benefits of redemption to the people whose names are written in that book. So we are here today loving the Lord Jesus, or if you are here today, loving the Lord Jesus, longing for the day that he's going to make everything new and right and perfect. If you have that kind of heart, it's because, and this is inconceivable to me, and I can't explain how it works, it's because the triune God knew you and loved you and set his affection on you and me before time began. And so in the scheme of eternity, by the grace of God, our destinies were secure. And I'll end with this. According to Jesus, that's the most important thing in life. Regardless of the accolades that you might receive, the place that you occupy in this world, the things that you accomplish more than anything else, you should be thankful that your name is written in heaven. When those 72 disciples got back and they, with euphoric joy, reported to Jesus what they had done and how even the demons, you know, acknowledged them and obeyed them, Jesus says, that's great. But don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And beloved, that's our encouragement. That should promote our endurance, that should promote our faith. That's why we should never ever be pessimistic. That should always give us hope, always encourage us to preach the gospel and to evangelize because God's got a book and names were written in that book and Jesus died for those names and nothing can vanquish the power of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of this difficulty and chaos, Christ and his gospel will reign. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and we praise you and we love you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the true, the authentic triune God, the God who elects, the Son who saves, the Holy Spirit who applies the benefits and the blessings of redemption. Father, we thank you that our names were written in this great book before time began because you knew us and you loved us. We pray that that would humble us and encourage us and build endurance in us and give us a taste that one day you will make all things new and all things right. Lord, we bow before you this day, our triune God, in the name of the slain lamb we pray, amen and amen.